0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: When Deb Wallace joined the New South Wales Police Force some four decades ago, she was one of only eight women in a class of 100. Deb was put on duty on the streets of Western Sydney. She worked hard at her job and became a detective after working on one of the most horrifying murder cases in the city's history. Deb went on to head up a squad charged with breaking up the gangs who ran the heroin trade in the Sydney suburb of Cabramatta in the 1990s. And then she commanded Strike Force Raptor, the police unit dedicated to breaking up criminal bikie gangs. So how do you dismantle such organisations that operate on a tight code of secrecy and brotherhood and murderous retribution? Well, Deb read The Art of War, the ancient Chinese military manual, and she and her colleagues found all kinds of ways to throw the biker gangs into organisational confusion and paranoia and misery. Deb Wallace was awarded the Australian Police Medal in 2011, and in 2019, she retired, closing the book on a stunningly successful police career. Hello, Deb. Welcome to you.
0: Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me.
1: Where did you grow up, Deb?
0: I'm a Westie and a proud Westie, I have to say. I grew up at Westmead, which is just near Parramatta, and then spent most of my um, adult life living in Parramatta. So I'm a Westie through and through.
1: What drew your parents to live in Western Sydney in the first place?
0: My dad and mum married and dad was from Manly, but as often happens even today, couldn't afford the prices in Manly, so they (laughs) go West. (laughs) So they built their dream home, which was a two-bedroom fibro place with a brick veranda at Westmead.
1: What were family holidays like then? Could you afford family holidays?
0: No, we were, we were very much a working class family. Dad had two and three jobs and mum stayed home, looked after the kids. Um, just typical of that that era. And um, our holidays, we couldn't afford holidays, but my dad made sure we didn't miss out. So he'd string a tarpaulin up on the clothesline and um, we would be hit with the neighbourhood because that became the the, the the street pool.
1: A tarpaulin on the clothesline? What, the Hills Hoist? Yeah, yeah. What do you mean you filled the, what up on you what you your pool was on top of the clothesline? No,
0: no, you'd you tie the four corners of the tarpaulin to the edge of the, oh, right. the, the, the the hills horse and make like a, a like a, a sling, I oh, I see. A right. hammock type right. thing. So
1: a spinning pool yeah. for, for the neighborhoods. Yeah. So what were you like growing up looking back on the young Deb Wallace?
0: I was sort of um I think you described me as beige. I was very much, <laughs> you know, I, I was uh, not very a high achiever. I sat in that middle road. Um, I had uh, a great family upbringing, typical childhood. We couldn't afford to go to dancing, so I did physical culture. And I think in my my years, I remember really being a happiest childhood.
1: Was sport a big thing for the family?
0: Uh, only rugby league. We right. were diehard, tragic uh, Parramatta supporters, right. <laughs> and I remember. Dad would take me across the golf course at Parramatta into Cumberland Oval, as it was known then, the home of the Eels, and we'd watch the game. And it wasn't until dad, my dad was, died of emphysema, which is a really difficult way to go. And it was his last few hours and, and we knew it was close, but he was still really, really with it. And I said, Dad, I, I have to ask you something. And he said, well, hurry up. And I said, well, Dad, I want to know, why did we always get to the games halfway through? For all those years, I remember and he said, you never worked it out. I said, no. And he said, you always got there free at halftime. So, <laughs> so that's, a, that's my last memory of my conversation with Dad.
1: What a marvellous thing. So what work did your dad have in mind for you for when you finished high school, Deb?
0: Um, again, being um, with his girls and Dad worrying about security in the future. So it was very simple to my dad was that you'll get a government job because you can be secure and you can be there for the rest of your life. And I wanted to be a travel agent, but I didn't know how to tell dad because that was just never going to fly. And I remember coming home from school on my last day of school and dad looked very proud and said, don't you worry. He said, I've got you a job where I work at Prospect County Council. You've got a job. As a clerk typist. And I just thought, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> he
1: meant well. Typing pool, here yeah, I come. Yeah. Typing pool. But that's not what happened. What got you interested in, in the police force?
0: It was never a lifelong ambition of mine. It was a case that I felt I sort of knew even when I was 18, 19, that I wanted a career. I didn't really want to have children. And I don't know how you would know that, but I just sort of knew that, which is was a prophecy that still came true. So I wanted a career. As travel agents was out the window... I thought about two careers that had height requirement because I was tall, I was five foot seven. And two were for Qantas to be a flight attendant in those days and the other was for the police. And coincidentally, while I'm sort of thinking of both, there was an ad in the paper for the police, particularly looking for women. Now that was 1982, but women had been around, of course, in the police since, you know, many, many, many years at the turn of the century, but weren't allowed to be frontline. Until 1976, so I was coming in in that really new sort of way uh, to be a, sort of joined in with the men. You were in the same policing.
1: Did you want that? Did you want frontline service when you when you signed up?
0: Yeah, I did. That's I wouldn't have joined otherwise. It was something I felt that if I could succeed in it, it could be a lifelong career. For me, the word career was really enticing.
1: How about your mum and dad? Your dad had got you this perfectly good job as a typist with the Prospect City Council, and there you were joining the police force. Were they pleased or or worried for you, Deb?
0: They were more than happy for me to pursue my dream. And I remember those nights going to night shift at Blacktown Mount Druitt in the middle of winter. And my dad would be still up, even though he would normally go to bed because he used to start work early. I'd see him at 10 o'clock at night and he'd be warming my <laughs> the very sexy underwear called a Spencer underneath my uniform <laughs> to keep me warm. And he'd be warming it by the fire for me to put it on. So I knew that he was pleased.
1: Now, before they let you join in those days, and maybe still now, I don't know, they would have to investigate to see whether you came from a good family. Presumably, Deb, that's to make sure that you're not infiltrating from some kind of criminal family. And how did that work, Deb, anyway?
0: Just simply you put your application in and then they ring up and make an appointment. The local sergeant from the local police station would come out and have afternoon tea with, with your family, just just simple as that, and um, then write a report. No doubt about that. And um, it wasn't until I left the cops that Mark Murray from The Telegraph got access to some of these documents to the police, which I never did, and it said um, words to the effect of neatly presented home, a working-class family but served a lovely afternoon tea, went to a green home. It was all describing this afternoon tea.
1: <laughs> so you went to the police academy in the Sydney suburb of Redfern. Yeah. What do you remember of that time in your weeks in the academy?
0: Uh, it was tough because I didn't. I was even though I knew one of the things for the application was we'll let the women come in, but you will have to pass the same physical training. To me, that was the hardest thing for me because I was not an athlete. I didn't do team sports because I have no hand eye coordination, and I was a girl that did physical culture, which really specialised in marching and and exercises on the spot. So I came in and I remember my very first. I think it was the first day. I was met by a figure who still I remember walking through the gates of Redford and he looked down at me. He was six foot four, bald head, wearing a tracksuit, and he just I think he was as shocked as someone like me coming in at the age of 21 and just said, Are you a trainee? And I think he looked, oh my God. And I said, Yeah, and he went, Oh, geez. And I that first day we went on a 10K run. Now I didn't walk that far or drive that far. So how was I going to run it? I struggled and I have to be honest, I didn't know I was going to make it. And I, for the first month, I really questioned whether I was going to be able to do this. And at the end of the month, this man who was the fitness trainer and responsible for getting us to the point of passing the physical training, he said to me, you're not going to go, are you? And I said, no. He said, you're going to stay here and make my life hell. Huh? I said, yep. And he said, well, you and I are going to spend every afternoon together for the next two months because our training was three months and we're going to get you fit.
1: And how were the blokes with you when you were going on those runs? Were they supportive or not supportive? Were they, were they? I mean, men can be pretty horrible in those situations with each other, let alone with women. How were they with you?
0: Fantastic. The guys knew that us girls were struggling, so we used to have to do this circuit around the barracks. You have to do two and a half Ks in eight minutes or something, and it's a, on a, you're on a timer. And if you don't do it, the whole lot will do it again, and it's really tough. So the boys knew that us girls were going to struggle so they'd wait down the side where the horses were. It used to be, there was stables for the police mounted unit and the boys would wait there and as us girls walked down there, which was out of sight of of Chica, They'd pick us up and run us that site, and then put us down, and then we just like we'd run it ourselves. So really, we only did three quarters in our own sort of shuffling way, and and the boys carried us at least. And that's what I learned from the police family. That's that was my experience for nearly thirty-seven years. That um, we will pick you up and we will support you. At least that was my experience.
1: Friends of mine who have joined the police at various levels, the thing that sort of happens. I, I've noticed is that they're introduced into this terrible world. People do terrible things, really terrible things. And it's easy for you to adopt as a police officer an attitude that you civilians are very nice people and we do everything we can to protect you, but you just just don't know what the real world is like because we see people at their worst all the time. And I'd always counter with saying, no, 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 you're the guy with the distorted lens here. You're seeing people at their worst rather than seeing them in a more natural situation. When you go to police academy, do they warn you? You're going to suddenly feel like you've been dropped into hell?
0: Not back then. I think today they they do a lot more about that to build resilience, if you can, because I always think you can't teach resilience. You have to live it and develop it over time. So we really didn't get that. We really, really focused on the physical side, the weapons training, and also the law. Today, I think training at the academy is, from what I've seen being down there, it's much more rounded. They, they, they expose you much more to what you may be going to experience and I think that's in the hope of building some resilience in, in the offices for the future.
1: So once you completed your 12 weeks training, where do they post you?
0: Well, you get to nominate in those days three places you wanted to work and being a Western Suburbs girl, my first choice, manly, <laughs> <laughs> obviously. My second choice was right. Cronulla. right. Um and third choice, I just wrote on the form anything with a beach would be oh, great. I was gonna say, you know,
1: and where where do they actually where did they send you though?
0: Blacktown Mountain. Blacktown Stuart. right.
1: <laughs> I'm going west. So once you were there doing that work on the streets of Western Sydney, what kind of things were you seeing that maybe you hadn't noticed before when you were a civilian?
0: I didn't realise the amount of even today, it's funny, way back then a lot you used to go to do a lot of um, domestic situations. You also would go to, in those days, um, break and enters. And I'm pleased to say these days, I think, if I'm right with the stats, they're still quite low, but break, in and steal in those days to support drug addiction. Also, um, our robberies were very common, unlike today. There was a standard uniform almost, a balaclava, a sawn-off shotgun, and they'd go to usually service stations or bottle shops. So they were generally the main things. And usually, obviously, the pub brawls, because closing time was usually 11 o'clock, those days, no one wanted to leave, so you have the closing pub brawls as well.
1: I'm told, and I find this very, very plausible to believe, and I I think I've seen this happen too, when there's a woman police officer in the scene of a nasty fight or a pub brawl, it might even be better to have a woman on the scene than a man. What's your experience of that, Deb?
0: Yeah, it was actually one of my first shifts with an amazing officer who was the best crook catcher in the command. He was tough. And I remember coming in on night shift on a Friday night, the busiest night in that command at Blacktown because that's when the pub brawls would be on and in particularly a number of pubs in the area at the time were the Coman Cutter and the Robin Hood and probably the roughest of all was the Stockade at Layla Park. And I remember walking in and I looked at the roster and there I was with this officer on 27-1, 27 being the area and number one being the car or the truck. So we go there, a signal goes off for us to attend an urgent brawl at the stockade, 40 guys involved, and all, all the senior council kept looking at me going, we're dead, me and you in a brawl, we're dead. My self-esteem was growing by the moment and we arrive and all I could think of in those days, women weren't allowed to wear trousers. We, had to, we were transitioning to trousers perhaps, so we had a mixture. We went from skirts to these things called which men wouldn't probably know about, called collots. Oh yeah. Collots, Long right. flary yeah. shorts. Yeah. So all I could think about, here's this man fighting, here's my colleague looking at me going, We're dead And I'm thinking I'm going to get hooked up with these shorts and I'm going to fall flat on my face. They're going to get hooked on the handbrake. I'm going to make this monumental entry. So I immediately thought about it and I laterally thought and I thought I'll wrap them around my legs really tightly so they don't get hooked and I'll hook them up like a miniskirt and I'll jump out of the truck. And that's what I did. And as I made this beautiful clean landing, like at the Olympics off the, you know, the vaulting box, men mid-punch stopped punching and just stared at us and said, my God, what? And they st- <laughs> they're looking at each other going, what's that? And then they started saying, who are you, love? And I said, oh, I'm probationary Constable Wallace. I said, like a cop. And I said, yeah, a cop. And then they're going, stop swearing. There's a chick over here. And my partner's just looking at me, shaking his head, going, oh, my God. And then they politely asked me because they stopped swearing, they stopped fighting, looking at me and my collots and said, so what do you want? What are you here for? And I said, well, you can't fight in public place. You need to leave quietly. And they went, you know, love, you asked us really kindly. Normally the cops get out and ask questions later. So, you know, love, we're going to go. And next week when we come back and maybe we'll come back and see you, that'd be lovely. So they all left and walked off quietly. And my partner just looked at me. We got back in the truck and he's a veteran of many, many years. And he looked at me, he shook his head and he said, you know, DB used to call me DB, DB, you and me every friday night from now on and so we did for the next 3 years
1: that won't be the way it always is in a brawl though will it sometimes no. there'll be guys uh, with crystal meth in their heads and exactly. uh, doing it, who don't care so how how can a woman walk towards a brawl like that
0: it's the circumstances everything's different and officers are trained as we were these days we had didn't in the old days we didn't have that many sort of um, options we had really a gun and we had a baton Uh, these days the police are equipped with a whole, you know, range of of things. Sometimes one would say, is that make it a little more complicated because they've got so many choices to use but they're trained so well and they don't want to escalate it. So they go, well, can I deal with this with talking and negotiation? Absolutely the best option of all. If, like you said, they're out of control through drugs or, or volatile, then, of course, you would go next level capsicum spray and so on up to, you know, your use of force that you're trained to do. But I did learn a technique for a, a domestic, which was really weird. I was working again, a sergeant, old heads have a smart, and we went to this really volatile domestic and it was screaming and yelling and he's knocked on the door and the doors open, a big burly bloke opened the door and I'm thinking, oh, here we go, there's a sergeant and I. And the sergeant suddenly just started to whisper, and said, "We're from the Blacktown Police," and I could barely hear him. And the guy screaming suddenly dropped his voice and said, "Where are you from, mate?" And he dropped. And suddenly, it, the the whole angst, I guess, or the whole aggression went out of the situation because it's hard to be so aggressive when you're whispering. And that, did, and I learned, I and mean, that's not going to work in every situation. Absolutely not. But I learned that lesson that there's a number of options that you can try and you get that by learning on the job.
1: A large part of that police work is just cleaning up mess created by broken or damaged people. Tell me about the man you saw one day with a baby and some beer in either hand.
0: Yeah, most of the jobs we went to were you know, reported crime and, and, and you were felt in a way you were, were helping people, so you were helping the good people get their property back or not, you know... Give them some comfort if they've been victim of an armed robbery, or helping women get out of a domestic situation, or whatever. And I remember once thinking, you know, people are pretty good. And then I was we were in Blacktown and we're driving down the main street, and we just looked to the side. We're on patrol, and there was a guy there, and he wasn't. There was no other person with him. It was late at night. It was winter, and he had a six-pack, and he had a baby, a little tiny infant, in his arms, wrapped in a blanket. And he was at the lights, and we were stopped at the lights. The lights changed, so he went to walk across. At that stage, he was trying to hold the baby, and I don't know what, whether he was drunk. I think he was feeling drunk at the time, and it sort of—it was like slow motion because we were stopped at the lights. And he looked at the baby, and he looked at the six pack, and suddenly to grab, he was starting to drop everything, and so he grabbed the six pack, and the baby dropped onto the ground my partner I jumped out of the car and, and went and, you know, he, he detained the male and I grabbed the baby. And we we took him back to the police station and um we knew we couldn't have the baby and so we took the baby with us and we put the baby in a motel room until with some docks people arrived and took the baby. And while I was waiting for the docs people to arrive to take the baby, I remember the little baby just laying in this motel room and just very quiet, and the baby was healthy. The baby was well; it didn't get hurt, thankfully, from the drop. But I just thought at that, that moment—I suppose it was a watershed moment—that that that people do bad things, and it was sort of—I think you know—stop, take the take the sort of the veil off your eyes, and because I like to see the good in people. That's how I was brought up, and I, I am still comforted by the fact that most people are good, but sometimes it's not so good or bad circumstances.
1: A few years into your career, there was that notorious murder of a woman named Anita Cobby, who was abducted by some men outside Blacktown train station in Western Sydney, uh, taken away, tortured, raped and, and murdered. It was such a vicious case. I think people felt there was some awful intimation of evil with it. It was a terrible thing. How were you involved in that case?
0: I was a junior officer, I was three years in the job, and the, the case happened, and I remember, um, I don't know if most people know this, but most murders are committed by people known to the victim, whether it's an inner circle or an outer circle, but there's an association of some degree. They're the majority, and they're the ones that detectives pretty well can systematically work through and find a line of inquiry that's the most likely, and have... A suspect or suspects. And they're the ones that are usually solved or they know who did it and they've just got to build the brief. It's the more random murders, someone not known to the victim, are the really difficult ones to solve, if ever. So the man in charge of the case from a black town, from Blacktown was a detective sergeant called Graham Rosetta, a hero, a hero still in my mind, and hero to me personally, but a hero in the workplace. And I think he quickly realized. After that, after about second day, that this was not a person known to Anita. It was someone in the community. So it was he, opportunistic.
1: She had just been standing there, wrong
0: place, wrong time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, she wasn't. You know, she was just walking home, minding her own business, to get to get home. And these, you know, horrendous, horrible people would just come across her. But um, Graham realised fairly quickly that he needed to reach out to the community. That the answers might be out there. That he, that there was nowhere else. They weren't. We didn't know where to go, or he didn't know where to go. So we'll need to ask the community. Best way through that, through the media reaching out. So um, he engaged the media and they were starting to lose a little bit of interest because Graham couldn't give them any more information to keep it alive on the front pages, even though the murder itself was so horrific. There was very limited details that he could give. So without anything alive, the media, I think, was starting to walk away a bit. So to keep them reinvigorated, he'd come up with a, a gimmick, for want of a better word was to do a reenactment of her last few hours exactly the same night she was abducted and murdered on the 2nd of February, 1986. So we did it the following Sunday. It was a Sunday night. And the idea was to dress me up in clothes similar to what she was wearing. I went with her two girlfriends to buy the clothes that they, because she had dinner with them prior to catching the train from the city back to Blacktown. And simply just did, got on the train at City Central um, we let the media stay with me all the way, got off at Blacktown. The media was still able to follow me until a point in time that Graham asked the media now to leave, and they did. And then I was simply asked to stand in a spot where they believe she was actually abducted from, from the evidence of witnesses hearing a scream or seeing taillights. And I was just asked to stand there and wait while the detectives took in the atmosphere, you know, the, the, what was the lighting like, well, how much traffic is here, just just getting a feel for it. And so I really wasn't paid a big role. After it, that night, Graham Rosetta took me into the car park at Blacktown when we got back at about half past nine. And he just looked at me in his stern way as he, he had a way and just said, how would you like to be a detective? And I... <laughs> I merely thought, gee, I must have walked good on that train. <laughs> He's a, he didn't know whether I would ever have the skills to do that, but he allowed me to stay with the team. I did a very little role in the investigation side. I helped a lot maybe by photostatting or getting lots of coffees when they were there late at night, staying and shadowing Graham. And I worked with a, a fellow to lock up the, those helping the killers once they were caught. But I got to see the team in action. And the passion, the commitment, the dedication. I just thought back then I wow, could I ever be one of these these men? You know, obviously women. And and three years later I got my dream. I passed my training, passed my exams and got my bit of paper that said I could now be a detective. And that was the career path I followed for the next thirty four years.
1: How much longer did it take for the police to crack that case then after that recreation had taken place?
0: number of weeks, which was amazing because, you know, starting from ground zero, just about nothing. The reenactment we did, to my understanding, and again, it it wasn't shared and I certainly didn't know the details per se, we did the reenactment on the Sunday and my understanding is within a very short time an anonymous caller came in and spoke to the team and gave them perhaps... Some lines of inquiry for them to pursue.
1: Are those men still in jail today?
0: Yep, uh, they were. They were actually sentenced by amazing Justice Maxwell to a sentence that wasn't usually given out, except in the most horrific of cases, and that was he wanted their papers marked never to be released. Everyone cheered at the time. You know, I remember the scenes about at Blacktown. People were running down the street and hugging, and and it was amazing. This scene, like you know, you, you, you just can't imagine. The community felt safe and vindicated, I guess, and, and justice had been done. I remember Gary and Grace and a number of others, though, were a little concerned with happy and but with the wording never to be released because they even, though they hadn't had a lot of experience with the justice system, I think they were also a little bit concerned that in years to come, what could that be interpreted as? So after they did go on to form the Homicide Victims Support Group with Christine and Peter Simpson, which is a, a legacy that lingers on today, they lobbied and were instrumental in, in reforming some laws so that we now have truth in sentencing, so that killers of this calibre can be brought back, or anyone can be sentenced to, to a head sentence, a top sentence, with a parole sentence underneath it. Those five killers and a number of others were brought back and brought um, and, and actually resentenced, for want of a better word, under the legislation, so it's law, to life without parole. This is Conversations with
1: Richard Feidler. On air,
0: online and on the ABC Listen app. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast.
1: To find out more, head to abc.net.au
0: slash conversations.
1: In the early nineteen nineties, Deb, you were posted to Cabramatta in Western Sydney, and this is where a lot of Vietnamese migrants had settled. What were you told about going into that job?
0: Uh, not a lot, really. I, I came from. I worked at Blacktown and the Western suburbs till I went to Cabramatta, and it was a culture shock because Cabramatta was such an interesting place because it used to take on the face of the immigration policy of the day. So it kept changing. After the Vietnam War, we got a lot of immigrants from, particularly South Vietnam from prison camps or and, and as the traditional, you know, we refer to it as boat people, I guess, for want of a better word, but also larger Southeast Asian countries, Cambodia, Laos, etc. So it was a bit confusing for me because I was used to the usual Anglo names, but I was so lucky because when I arrived there in 1991, I had a fantastic group of detectives there, a small group. There was only about eight or nine but a lot of those young detectives coming through or training to be detectives had worked the beat of Cabramatta for years. So they knew all the culture, they were they were embedded in the area, they had a passion for the area, a passion for the people of the area. So it was um, a little bit unusual because I've gone from everyone having, as we know, you know, names Bill Smith or, you know, Mary Jane, to suddenly they have three names and they're known by three names. And they didn't often have birth certificates, so we actually didn't know how old they were, just relied on what they tell you, et cetera. So I got very quickly to learn that this was a mixture of this fantastic community that, you know, a lot of the restaurants, there was 94 restaurants in Cabramatta, and I think I added every one because they were amazing. But I soon learned that people that opened restaurants might have been, you know, teachers or academics or nuclear physicists or microbiologists but because they escaped, they just did the best they could and opened restaurants or shops, et cetera, like that. So an amazing place to work and a highlight of my career.
1: A lot of your work was being directed at a particular gang called the 5T. Who were they?
0: Yeah, the streets um, at the time was pretty well run by, he uh, started off as a, one would say in today's terms, a youth gang, or and then they evolved to probably a street gang. They probably didn't get as far as organised crime, but there was certainly a level of organisation amongst them. They were the the first generation. They were kids that came out of here without family. They didn't have any English skills. So they went from the prison camps into the detention centres at Villawood and onto the streets. They simply bonded together and to, for want of a better word, and I'm not excusing them, but to survive, they started off more what you'd call low crime. So they did um, neck chain robberies or breaking and steals. They then grew in reputation because they had a particular, as gangs often do, they needed a particular identity. So their identity was their look. And they'd have long shoulder length hair. They often wore baggy suits. And they um, had a lot of tattoos. But unlike today's perhaps, gang member, they hid them. So they were under their, their long sleeve shirts. And they had their signal or their insignia of five Ts on their arm. And then they moved into doing extortions. And a lot of brave people came forward and helped us identify the offenders, so they went to jail. So then they turned into middle-level dealers for the higher-level um, suppliers of heroin. So Cabramata quickly morphed through having its own marketplace, I guess, into a very large heroin retail outlet.
1: How much distress was this causing in the local migrant community? Having youth gangs selling heroin out of, largely at Blacktown Station, I believe, wasn't it? That would allow them to hop on a train if they needed to and escape if need be. How was this affecting the local migrant community?
0: At first, I think they were really tolerant because it was a smaller market, because the biggest market prior to, say, 1995 was King's Cross. So Cabramatta serviced a smaller marketplace which was known to the Western Suburbs people. So a lot of people would come in from, say, Campbelltown, Liverpool, Blacktown, Mount Druitt, et cetera. We, we were doing some research for the government to compare the King's Cross heroin with the Cabramatta heroin. The heroin in King's Cross sold, say, for $50 a street deal and was about 15 to 20% pure heroin you know, mixed with sugars to make it go further, as I recall. Cabramatta heroin, we found when we did the testing, came in at about 75% pure, what you'd call almost cut straight from the block. And it was selling for $25 a street deal. Now, we thought to ourselves, I hope no one learns about this. Well, of course, a newspaper article came out in, I think it was 94, 95.
1: Daily Telegraph, the headline was the Smack Express, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And what did that do to the situation in Cabramatta?
0: Best publicity of uh, all, isn't it? So all roads then led to Cabramatta. Right, come
1: to Cabra for your cheap heroin.
0: And if, while right. you're there, you know, if you don't have enough, and of course the risk is, let's, you know, they were very smart. Let's let's minimise the risk. If we can buy more heroin while we're here, we don't have to come back for two or three days. So we don't have enough money. But if we do a bag snatch or while we're here, we can get more money. Um, interestingly enough, the gangs themselves they called the Anglo's that came to buy drugs white eyes. They really hated bag snatchers because they said, you know, it was really weird. They didn't mind selling to out-of-towners but they were concerned that the their own community would become victims. They had this strange moral code. So, yeah, so the community, they did as best they could. They know we were doing our very best to try and help them and the community was so supportive of the cops. They were great.
1: So in order to figure out how to clamp down on the operations to break apart the gang operations of the, the gang stealing heroin in Cabramatta... You have to learn to think like them, don't you?
0: Yeah, I. Um, it was sort of like a, a, the perfect storm in a way The heroin trade was flourishing. We had a local member of Parliament was murdered in 1994. John Newman. John, yes. John Newman. We then had the leader of that, that gang that was running the heroin, he got murdered as well. So suddenly there's a lot of media attention, a lot of political attention, all eyes on Cabramatta. My boss, who was um, Chief Superintendent Paul McKinnon, was no doubt under a lot of pressure and I, again, don't. I was only a young sergeant at the time. You know, I don't know what was going on at the higher echelons, but I do know he was under some pressure, as you could imagine. So he got me aside and just said, oh, we've got a new strategy. We're going to launch onto the streets to deal with the gang and the drugs. And I said, oh, that's really good. What are they? And he said, we're going to launch the Cabramatta Gang Squad. And I went, oh, that's great. A whole group of, like, elite police coming in to take control. Us small group of detectives can put our feet up, have a cigar. What a good idea. What a great idea. He said, well, Wallace, what are you talking about? Because I'm rambling on about this is fabulous news, you know. Where have they been training, you know? And he just looked at me in his way and said, congratulations, Wallace, you're now gang squad. I, I thought it was a poison chalice at the time, in hindsight probably one of the biggest things for my career was to cement my credibility as an operational frontline street cop in hindsight. But I didn't really think that at the time and I didn't have the answers. So he gave me a book, Sun Tzu, The Art of War, and said, read it. And I'm going, read it? What are you talking about? Shouldn't I go to the police manual or shouldn't I talk to like someone? And he said, just read it. And I read it and one of the things that stood out for me was it said, before you can defeat your enemy, you must know their weaknesses. So I thought well, that's pretty. That sounds pretty, pretty good. So I, you know, pretty idealistic, I guess. I went up to this, the, what was left of the senior management of the gang. The leader hadn't been reappointed, and I would sit around this coffee shop at, in the middle of Cabramatta, and I asked,
1: "You're talking to these guys in a coffee shop? This, they were willing to do that?
0: Yeah, yeah. The Asian street gangs were really unusual. I haven't seen anything like it since. I think it's just the way they were. It was they had an attitude. That you do your crime, you do the time, that our job is to do crime, your job is to catch us, and if you caught them, they were very tough, stoic, they don't you know they, they just went to jail. But they also had some sort of begrudgingly respect, I guess, for the cops. They knew it was not personal, it was a job for us, and the eight detectives or the small group of detectives we had operated under this uh, sergeant called Cole Hilson, Detective Sergeant Cole Hilson, and he taught us that you have to work here, you have to come here every day. We want to make it as safe as you can. You've got a job. You've got to lock them up. There's a way to do things around here because they outnumber us. So we did it in a, I suppose, a passive way but a strong way. So they had this begrudging respect. So it was not unusual to just stop and, and I'd learnt that from my colleagues, just go up and have a chat to them. The old story, get more with honey than you do vinegar.
1: So once you got talking to younger gang members, what did you learn about their lives?
0: Yeah, they um, sort of, when I told them I didn't want it to be a gang anymore and not my job was to break them up, they just looked at, they laughed a bit and said, Madam, makes a funny joke. And then they said, Madam, you know, and they sort of said, you've got to understand us. And I said, well, tell me about you. And I said, well, you know that we're now murdering, we've committed murders, we're thugs, we wield machetes, we, you know, sell drugs, we do a lot of violence. That's how we maintain our turf, our reputation. But we weren't always like that. We came out here for a new life. We escaped. Our families often paid money to get us out here with a new hope for their teenage, young teenage sons. But of course, when we got here, our hopes sort of quickly dwindled because we didn't have language. We had no education. So how were we going to get a job? And they quickly, they they said to me, education and, and getting employment is the secret, but we didn't have it. So we we did what we did. So, so what? Could,
1: so what could you do about? It?
0: Well, they put the challenge to me when they said, you know, the secret. Forget about us because they said three things will happen to us. We will either you'll lock us up because that's what you do. We will die. We'll get killed because that's what happens when you become a gang. It's just life is cheap, or we may just grow up and grow out if we're given time. But there's another group coming through that see us as their role models. They want to be the future five T. So they haven't committed crimes at this stage, but they're following us around. They want to be our foot soldiers and we want to protect them. So they said, the challenge for you is to get them into a school, get them educated. I'm going, oh, God, that's... So I would go to our schools. We had amazing schools in that area, Canlyvale High, Cabramatta High, amazing teachers, passionate and they just said, we'd love to help you, Ted, but you know, these kids, they've been on the streets. How are we going to bring them in to mainstream when they don't really speak English? And so while this dilemma's going on about how do I get them, my dearest friend today, but at the time was a bit, it wasn't my friend at the time. I thought he was a bit another do-gooder coming in to tell us how to do things. And it was a priest called Father Chris Riley from Youth Off The Streets. And he approached me and said, I think I can help you. And I said, oh, how can you help me? And he said, I'm a registered school. I said, what do you mean you're a registered school? He said, I am personally. I teach kids on the cross. I have been for years. I can teach these kids. And I said, these aren't kids, Father. I was My ego was out there, you know, Father, do you respect? These are machete-wheeling folks. I'm more worldly
1: than you. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So we went up. I took him for a walk. He said, can I meet them at least? I said, yeah, let's go. So I took him for a walk with him and his great day in Collingwood. And we went up to the outdoor coffee shop where they would sit every morning and we approached. They were a bit, bit sus, who's this guy? And I said, he's a priest. Well, it was like I was introducing them to the Pope because they said, oh, Father, you have a seat. And they wiped his seat down and I they said, what about me? You know, like you normally get me a seat. They went, oh, yeah, there you are, am used to sit there. And Father just simply said, I will be here three days a week, three hours a day to teach you this kid's school. But in those three hours, there will be no drug dealing, no crime and no violence. He said, oh, I walk. And they said, and Madam, they used to call me Madam, she will be here as well. And I'm going, oh, will I? Thanks a lot. (laughs) Um, So we did that. We did that. Um, And eventually, Father, um, through some circumstances, took the young ones to his farms, which were on the southern highlands. And as far as I know today, and I did track them for a long time when I was in the cops. Um, none of those younger ones we took, they all got educated, they all got their school certificates, if not their high school certificates. Some went to uni and they're all being productive members of the community.
1: Running a bit ahead here, 2014, you were put in charge of a group called Strike Force Raptor. What was the nature of this group's work,
0: Deb? Yeah, I got promoted to superintendent, became the commander of Asian organised crime, and then uh, spent um, seven years as the commander of Middle Eastern organised crime. And then my final stopping point was as the commander in charge of the gang squad and strike force Raptor. And Raptor's main uh, only objective was um, to disrupt, dismantle and disable outlaw motorcycle gangs.
1: So the approach you used for dealing with the criminal culture in Cabramatta, this is a completely different kind of criminal culture, isn't it? There's not much community-mindedness you can appeal to with these organisations, is there?
0: No. No. As I also learnt with those involved in in the um, Middle Eastern groups, crime groups, and now with bikies, they're motivated by one thing, and that is it's about money, it's about power, it's about territory. Totally different, different ends, whereas the Asian crime groups are understated and under the radar and try to stay that way the bikies are out there they rely on visibility to do their intimidation to do their dirty work so it's completely at odds so i i learned very early that it's okay to say i don't know and i i need to be taught and who better to teach me was these amazing management team that i had group of sergeants and inspectors who'd been there since uh, 2009 when raptor was set up following the brawl and the murder at the airport they, that's in it all. So I thought, who better to teach me what makes up, an, and again, going all the way back to Sun Tzu, you can't beat us unless you know it. So I asked them to teach me. And we simply locked ourselves in a room for a number of hours and I just said, just teach me. Tell me the characteristics of what becomes of today's outlaw motorcycle gang member as opposed to, you know, the 50s and 60s and 70s.
1: So these guys typically have the morality of a kind of a Balkan warlord. When they talk a lot about brotherhood, you know, the brotherhood of of the gang, do they mean it? Is that that any truth in that?
0: Nothing at all. Today, no, 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 that died out. Like originally, I do believe they were set up what we probably perceive as large white men with beers on bikes. That was the brotherhood stuff, I suppose, in those days. It completely changed to become a criminal organisation, nothing more than that, and they relied on the reputation of the banner that had sustained years and years in some cases People come and go, but the banner stayed. So that's what I operated on to give them notoriety to do their dirty work under.
1: Yeah, and they do have a terrifying presence. With that reputation, how do you then go about dismantling that kind of a network, Deb?
0: We were realistic. We understood that the actual dismantling of an outlaw motorcycle gang, as I said, people will come and go, but the banner will remain strong. So we then focused a lot on the disabling and the disrupting.
1: And maybe then they'll dismantle it for you? Exactly. Yeah. It'll be less attractive. Yeah.
0: And and the idea was to make it a hostile environment, to perhaps in a way lock up those in it and to encourage those in it to give up their colours and to discourage those wanting to join it. It's just too hot.
1: To make it too life too miserable for them on a day-to-day basis. Tell me how you did this.
0: Well, after the guys and girls put up these different characteristics of what comes up, what does a biker gang look like, then we'd set about, okay, <laughs> let's just take out every one of those things that they like. So with a combination of high impact we call visible operations, covert investigation operations, mixture of using local government regulations Each one we were able to target. What, like planning violations, that kind of thing? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, they put up um, fortifications so that cops can't get in or there's a delay for cops to get in with search warrants. So we would go to the council and say, did they get DA approval for that? Oh, no, they didn't. (laughs) So they'd rip the cameras out. and um, So things like also they have to drive and if they're going to sell drugs and intimidate and shoot people, then they're likely not going to pay their parking fines or their traffic fines. So we get their licences suspended. And, and then eventually they drive when they're suspended. So then eventually they can go to jail for driving while disqualified, et cetera.
1: And presumably not being able to ride motorcycles. But do, do biker gangs even ride motorcycles these days? Is that still a thing?
0: Not really. No. No, it's, it was mm. always a thing to have one, but they tended yeah. to, you know, high-performance cars. They love the Lamborghinis. They love BMWs. They love Audis, you know. How
1: about their ability to communicate? How are you able to mess with their comms, so to speak, Deb?
0: Yeah, one of the best things I think we did, which was a, an old law, they have to be able to associate, to plot criminal activities, and particularly a Friday nights, they'd gather at their their clubhouses, which were like RSLs in some cases. And that was called church night, ironically. And that's no doubt. They were behind closed walls. They felt safe. They were pretty guarded on ever who would be allowed in there. And so they could plot criminal activities. There was a law that was used for for the razor gangs way back in you know 1920s and 30s to a uh, called consorting, which meant criminals weren't allowed to associate. Now that was a really clunky piece of legislation. It was it was really cops, even though it was still valid. Cops never used it because it was really hard. Some uh, some fantastic work went in um, to reinvigorate the consorting laws under the guise that these guys have to get together, have to communicate. So the laws were changed or amended, I should say, to incorporate not just face-to-face meetings such as Clubhouse but also through text, through social media and through telephone. And it also, the penalties were increased which meant we could then do some covert um, activities. It was such a powerful law in essence and the mere fear of not being able to gather gave rise to two of the nomads taking us to the High Court on a a constitutional challenge. Right. So we we went went all the way to the High Court and I remember it was in October 2014, the rebels were ready to do a big national run heading from the biggest biker gang in Australia at the time from Sydney to Coffs Harbour. There were going to be at least 1,200 on Harleys or cars heading up the coast. The law was made valid by the High Court on the Thursday, so we went to work and we put out our own propaganda about how Raptor was going to enforce this consorting legislation. We were still getting our heads around the intricacies of the legislation about how, how we could apply it effectively. They were equally worried, so they cancelled the run and that was saw sort of the end of the national runs in New South Wales. I think
1: when most people think the idea of cracking down on a bikey gang. They might, you don't think too hard about it. You might imagine cops in heavy protection gear, raiding a clubhouse, grabbing guys, arresting them, throwing them, that sort of thing. Instead, what you've done here is take away their mobile phone, their car, their motorcycle, and their clubhouse. What are they left with after that?
0: And even their colours at times, we, we worked with the liquor records in the local area commands to make it a part of their liquor licences that licensed premises had a no colours policy. So now they couldn't go into pubs and, and and licensed premises wearing their colours, you know, sitting at tables looking like tough guys. They were just like every Joe Punter. So taking away that ability to me was crucial. Absolutely. The going through the front door with Raptor in their full right gear was absolutely critical, particularly doing search warrants because they were still selling drugs, they still held firearms, they still had their clubhouses, which we were dismantling one by one. That was critical. Raptor's visible presence was critical to say, we're the biggest gang in town, not you. We would then go to other jurisdictions. You know, we would go to South Australia. What have you got? They go, oh, we've got firearms program. Oh, that looks good. And they'd say to us, what have you got? we got consorting. Oh, that looks good. And we'd share it. So suddenly this, what you know, for want of a better word, like a board of directors called Morpheus, and we'd sit together every month and discuss purely operational matters because there was no borders in a lot of cases for these guys. They'd, you know, do interstate stuff.
1: Did they ever figure out that they were part of this coordinated attack on everything that they enjoyed in life?
0: Yeah, they knew and they didn't like it at all, um, absolutely. And we didn't hide the fact that that's what we were doing because we threw everything we could at them every every way. As one of my um, wonderful inspectors in charge of the tactical side of Raptor said, it's almost, he used to call it the, the scorched earth strategy or the death by a thousand cuts
1: it's really impressive, Deb, I got to say it's really impressive. It must be fun. Is it fun to to go about this work, about making their lives just not enjoyable at all?
0: Um, extremely satisfying, satisfying. to right. seeing okay. you know the clubhouses <laughs> being taken out on a pantech truck.
1: Do they get a bit teary
0: about this? Some do. Uh, we have seen, that on occasions is why can't you just leave us alone? I just want to, I'm not, I'm not a bikey anymore. And then, and you know, there's certain telltale signs that they are still a bikey because one of the rules of being a bikey, you've got to hand your colors back in and you go into their house and there's their colors. So right. you sort of wear that, you know, I'm not part of the group anymore. Why don't you just leave? Certainly, some do voluntarily surrender their colors. So, you know, but we have seen tears shed as well.
1: <laughs> so you retired in 2019. Now you volunteer at Grace's Place. What is Grace's Place?
0: Yeah, I felt, you know, in the cops, you you are providing a service, and I knew when I retired I wanted to continue that. So I do some charity work in a number of areas, but one of the most important to my heart is Grace's Place. Gary and Grace, um, particularly Grace, became a very big part of my life. Anita Cobby's mum and dad she would often say about how much they achieved and how much they got satisfaction of helping the Simpsons get through their trauma after little Ebony died in 92.
1: So this is an organisation that supports the families of yeah. violent crime?
0: Yes. It was formed in 1992 directly by Gary and Grace Lynch, and Edith's parents, and Peter and Christine Simpson. And it's grown, sadly, in years, and it's now got thousands of people that they have supported over the years. And one of the things Grace should say was she, she really loved being able to help families with children. So when she died, her dream was a decision that was made by our fantastic director, Martha Jabour, who's kept this organisation going for all these years. It was a dream. So a number of families that had been affected by homicide also wanted to leave a lifelong legacy in the form of a home, for want of a better word, for children affected by homicide between the ages of three and 15. And it's the world's first. We did a lot of chook raffles of fundraising and events and raised our seeding amount, which then the state government also supported us and the federal government also supported us. And now on the 2nd of February, which was Anita's anniversary of her murder, it was an amazing event to open Grace's Place at duneside, close to where they lived. And very shortly we'll be um, taking our families in. And um, and I think Martha's, because it is a world's first and it's Australia's first, by sure, I think the doors might be opened a little bit further than New South Wales as well.
1: It seems to me maybe the great gift you can have as a police officer is one of temperament, having the right kind of temperament. What do you think about that?
0: Oh, I totally agree. And I think people, before they would go in to be a police officer, just, just need to have a little inwards as well. It's not like you see on telly all the time. You know, I look at people that work in child abuse, sex crimes, homicide. They're there for the long slog, seeing you know, human tragedy. The COPS has shades of black and white and grey. And I think before you join, I really would just like to encourage people just to look inside and say, what does being a police officer mean? It's holistic. And I think you're 100% right, Richard. It's about temperament. It's about having some resilience, about having balance. And people ask me, where did you get your life balance from? And I surrounded myself with people like Father Chris Riley and the team of his volunteers and I, and I got to learn that the 1% label that the outlaw motorcycle gangs like to wear proudly on their jackets and say proudly wear, we're the 1%ers who operate outside the law. I think that's true generally of society. Criminals are the 1%. 99% are good, honest, hardworking people and they're the people that we do our job for.
1: What a pleasure it is to meet you, Deb. Thank you for all your work. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks, Richard. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.